Okay, welcome to Health Talk from Mars. It's out of this world. And in today's episode, what I would like to do, since we are now in the holiday season full flung, is to discuss mental health and the holiday season. I know my mom had a really tough time with the holidays, I think from her childhood, and she always got really depressed and she was always like hurting and she had various physical physical symptoms, you know, pains and aches and whatnot. And we used to try to counsel her, you know, make sure she didn't watch like sad movies and such, some little things. But what I'd like to do today in today's episode is to talk about all the little things that we can do that would greatly help mitigate the symptoms during the holiday season. So with COVID and such, what we've seen is a lot of people have become more depressed. So the amount of medications that we now see getting dispensed, Zoloft and Paxil and Wellbutrin, Prozac, there's so many medications out there and there's like a shortage actually of these medications because so many people are having some pretty severe symptoms. What can we do to mitigate some of these symptoms? Some of them seem really obvious to me, but you know, doing them is a whole different story. What I'd like to do is to start off and talk about a quote from Krishnamurti. Krishnamurti was a famous spiritual leader, Buddhist, who practiced the art of meditation. And in my meditation in the morning, I always say this one thing, and I say it a few times, and it's, when the mind is still, tranquil, not seeking any answers nor solutions even, neither resisting nor avoiding, it is only then that there is a regeneration, and it is only then that the mind is capable of perceiving what is true. And it is this truth that liberates us, not any and all of our efforts to be free. So the meaning of that is to just shut the hell up. (laughs) Don't think about stuff. And when I say don't think about stuff, I mean try to think, as Ram Dass used to talk about, the spaces between your thoughts. So everyone has a constant amount of jitteriness, jitter stuff going on in their mind. And, you know, this chatter, this mental chatter, most of the time is negative. Psychologists believe 90% of what people think about is negative. Like, oh, I'm late for this. Oh, I better not forget this. Oh, I didn't go to the gym today. Oh, I didn't get the right groceries. So if you're thinking about the spaces between your thoughts, you're not thinking about anything. And as a result, you're not thinking negative thoughts. So that's a good start. And, you know, one of the things that I try to get people to do, aside from prayer or meditation or just trying to be still, is, and this is kind of a Western way to quiet the mind, is to float. So floating is a very interesting experience if people haven't floated before. Definitely don't go see altered states before you float. But So floating involves going into a tank that the water is heated to your skin temperature, 
and the skin temperature in the water is saturated with over a thousand pounds of Epsom salt, which is magnesium. And we're going to talk a little bit of magnesium a little bit later to quiet the mind. And so you go into this tank and the water is exactly your skin temperature and you close the lid and it's soundproof and then you can't see any speck of light. So it could be a little scary. I had my mom do this during the holiday when she came to visit and we kept the lid open so you can do that. And there's a place right by my office that claims to be the largest float place in North America, which they have six float stations. Two of them are open room. So if you're claustrophobic or scared of the dark, you can do the open room float. So you lie down in this water and, you know, it takes a little bit of practice. You lie down in the water and you try to keep your body really still, half your head's floating in the water. And after you close the lid and you don't hear anything, after a few minutes, you just hear Boom, and then you hear Darth Vader. So that's all you hear, your breath and your heart rate. And it's like, okay. Now me, I usually fall asleep when I go in there. And then I wake up, and luckily, because you're floating, you're still alive and you haven't drowned. So when you first get in as a beginner, you kind of push your head against the water, and then the water pushes back against your head. And then you push again, and then it pushes back against you. And then you realize, wow, I'm really like floating almost on top of the water. I don't have to hold any muscles. I don't have to hold my head. I could just fully relax. So you're in this tank for about an hour and a half. And during that time, you're soaking in all this magnesium into your tissues, which has a wonderful somnolent and wonderful relaxing effect. Not to mention, it's the first time in your existence that you have no sensory stimulation. So even when you're in the womb, in mom, you can hear your mom's heartbeat, you're pressing up against her rib cage, her stomach, her liver, you're bobbing all around in this fluid. So you have sensory stimulation there. In this, you have no sensory stimulation. So it's amazing. So when you come out, usually they'll play a little bit of music. They pipe it into the tank. And that's your cue that, you know, get the hell out of the tank now. Someone's waiting to use the tank. By the way, nothing grows in this tank. And they do filter the water and they have ultraviolet radiation that they do to kill any germs. But it is so saturated with magnesium. Nothing really is going to grow much into this water. So it's pretty clean. Anyway, so that's just one little thing that you can do. So what I want to do is I want to talk, aside from prayer and meditation, I'd like to talk about traveling. And so I mentioned previously about when you travel on a plane that you're exposed to a bunch of environmental toxins and toxicants. And there's things you can do that we've talked about before to protect you, especially antioxidant nutrients. So one of the things, and traveling could be really stressful on the mind and the body. Plane travel especially, you know, they're forcing you through all these hoops and checking you for making sure you don't have any weapons like a nail clipper that you can 
gouge out the pilot's eyes. You know, it's kind of crazy, the stuff that they do. And you, you're not going to blow anything up with, you know, three ounces of water. So I, I get that. And so I actually enjoy traveling. I use it as a time to do various activities like exercise and meditation and yoga. So well, how does that happen? First off, I have a policy when I travel. I never use the escalator or elevator unless I have like some really serious luggage and I it's just really impractical. But if I just have like a pack on me, like I'll walk up the stairs deliberately. So that means I will seek out the stairway, even if it might be a little more difficult. And I use the stairs. I try not to use those walkways, the traveling walkways, and I walk. Obviously, if you're late, do whatever you can to get to your flight. But if you got time, you know, use it as a chance to do a little bit of physical activity. When you finally get to your destination, now me, I'm kind of a freaky kind of guy. So I take my bike almost everywhere when I travel. And so when I get to the airport, instead of getting a ride, I take my bicycle out of the suitcase and I put it together and I put all my stuff in the suitcase, which becomes a trailer. And then I bike out of the airport. I've done that in 23 different airports. Now, I don't recommend that for most people, but it's a feeling of freedom. So let's say you take an Uber or a taxi or someone comes to pick you up. Instead of going to their house and just crashing on the couch and talking to your, you know, the person that you're visiting, I recommend highly to go for a little walk. So 15, 20 minutes, just a little tiny little bit of walk to get outside and get a little bit of earthing, but just to get a little bit of like fresh air and just to get the cobwebs off your brain. Seems like a small little thing, but you know what? Just that little thing is really good. Also recommend that for people who have blood sugar issues and they basically need to control their blood sugar. So after you eat, if you take a little bit of a walk, it actually burns enough calories that it dampens the glycemic effect of the food. So it's something really simple that you can do. And But it's just a matter of getting into the habits, like brushing your teeth or stuff that we do every day that we take for granted. So keep that in mind. So here's another tip on the airplane. An airplane is actually a great place to do yoga. I call it chair yoga or plane yoga. And I try to be as discreet as possible. So many times, if it's a long flight, let's say I'm going back to New York and it's, you know, four and a half, five and a half hours, depending which, which way you're going, I will go up to the bathroom at least three times. And I'm actually not going to the bathroom, but what I'm doing is giving myself a chance to stretch and to get out of the seat and to be able to do a little bit of yoga. I'll usually do like triangle pose or warrior. I'll try to do it, you know, subtly. I'll reach up to the top of the plane and try to touch the top, do side bends and then finally, when I've been there for a few minutes, then I'll go into the bathroom and do a little toilet yoga where I'm actually doing some poses like eagle pose where you cross your legs and you tuck your foot behind your leg and then you cross your arms and you, you tighten them up. When you're in your seat, if you're sitting next to someone, obviously 
you know, probably not the best time to do yoga, but when they go up and, you know, if they go to the bathroom or they're out of their seat, aha, there's your opportunity to do your yoga. So take advantage of that. That's your cue to do that. Now, food-wise, this is a really interesting thing. Most people eat because they're bored out of their mind. And we talked about this in previous podcasts about fasting. Very few people actually get hungry. We call that you have an appetite, which is great. One of my most fun things to do is to eat. So when you travel, especially that's when people eat crappy food. So what I recommend highly is to bring your own juice. So of course, now with COVID and security, hard to do. So you do the best you can. So there are some organic juices that you can purchase. In Portland, we're lucky. We have a pretty good airport that has a bunch of Gorge Organics is one brand that I use. And it has whatever your pleasure, strawberry or blackberry or beet juice or greens. That would be the best thing. And buy two or three of those juices. And instead of eating the food on the plane, which is usually fairly atrocious, just eat fruit and just have the juices. So using this as an opportunity to actually fast, you will find that your body is going to be much, much happier in doing those things. But plan ahead. So let's say I'm going to fly to New York. I get in at three o'clock in the afternoon is a common time. I'll plan on a dinner, really nice dinner at a nice restaurant. Being, you know, I'm a plant-based vegan eater. I'll try to seek out the best vegan restaurant in that city. And I'll tell whoever I'm visiting, like, hey, I got special eating requirements. Can we do this? And I'll take you to dinner. So, And then they're like, okay. And then they usually have a good response. And I took my cousin on her 80th birthday to ABC vegan restaurant in New York City. And just at first she didn't want to go. And I'm like, come on, I'm going to take you for your birthday. You're going to love it. She was kicking and screaming. And to this day, she it never lets me forget. Oh, that was so good. That was so, un it was kind of expensive. I'll, I'll say that, but it was worth it to have her experience the good plant-based food. And it was really good for you. Now, of course, you could eat junk vegan food. That's a possibility, especially with desserts and stuff. But, you know, the majority of the food's going to be really good. When you pack your gear, plan on doing some activities that you're going to schedule, like yoga, for example. I'm a big fan of hot yoga, so you don't really need anything to do hot yoga because they usually will have mats for you. But I bring my shorts. So if you don't bring your shorts, the chances are less that you're going to do yoga. I'll bring my swim goggles. There's always usually a place to swim, whether it's a club. I belong to LA Fitness. They have a policy where I could use any LA Fitness anywhere in the country. And I think there's a few of them in Connecticut, New York, where I go, or you know other places, California. It's great. Love it. So if you don't bring your goggles, you're less likely to swim. So just little things. Pickleball. I've gotten into pickleball the last couple of years, and sometimes I'll take my pickleball paddles. If you got a paddle, you're much more likely to play. So anyway, plan on such activities in your destination. 
just to make your traveling experience more healthy. All right. So now what I want to talk about specifically is your brain. As I mentioned, my mom used to get really depressed during the holidays, and it's really common. People commit suicide. People get really lonely. People isolate themselves, and especially with COVID. A lot of this has to do with your brain chemistry. So I want to talk a little bit about brain chemistry because brain chemistry is everything. 70% of your brain is made out of fat. So that means we're all fatheads. And the fat that's in your brain is actually determined by the fat that you eat. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, paleolithic diets and ideal diets as related to that. So what do we know? Well, we know in Paleolithic times that the ratio of omega-3 fat to omega-6 fat was much different than what it is today in industrialized nations. And so what is an omega-3 fat and what is an omega-6 fat? These are polyunsaturated fats, and these are fats that are essential. Essential fats are fats that you cannot live with. And so it's necessary to consume a certain amount. Now, how much is the optimal amount? I think that's open for discussion, but there's been a tremendous amount of research and a number of books that have been written on this topic. And I think it's really important to pay attention to this. So when we look at omega-6 fats, those are oils. And those are oils that most people get plenty of. Omega-3 fat those are fats that we don't get very much of. And you hear about omega-3 fats in fish, especially cold water fish. But omega-3 fats are found in plants in small amounts. If you eat a lot of plants, you're going to get a significant amount of omega-3 oils. But you need to pay attention to how much you're actually consuming. So a lot of people don't eat much in the way of fish. And they just eat chicken and they eat, you know, other meats and whatnot, and turkey, and pork and whatnot. There's not a whole lot of omega-3 fats, even in grass-fed animals. It's relatively small. Now, wild game is a different story. So wild game does have a significant amount of omega-3 fats. So what is the difference? Both of omega-6 and omega-3, I'm simplifying this greatly right now just to, to get through this, but when we get into the biochemistry, we know that omega-3 fats have a tremendous amount of anti-inflammatory property. They lower your blood pressure. They keep your platelets from sticking together. They're really good at lowering your LDL cholesterol. They're good at raising HDL cholesterol. They're really good at lowering triglycerides. Triglycerides are the fats that interfere with your insulin binding to the receptors that causes elevated blood sugar. So you want to get as much omega-3 fat as you can get. So they guesstimate back in Paleolithic days, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 was about 3 to 1 to 5 to 1 in that range. So we'll call it 4 to 1. In industrialized nations, we get approximately 20 parts of omega-6 and one part of omega-3. So we really need to work hard on getting that omega-3. And there's controversy. We're not going to get into that totally here. 
about what is the ideal diet, but safe to say the ideal diet has a significant amount of omega-3 fatty acids. Now, preformed omega-3 fats, so those would include, there's two main oils, DHA and EPA. EPA stands for eicosapentaenoic acid. DHA stands for dicosahexaenoic acid. So those are two very essential oils, and usually they come mostly from fish. But where do fish get those oils from? They get them from plants. That would be algae. Algae is a plant source of omega-3 fats. So in the last 20, 25 years, they've been like, oh, we could make supplements that aren't fish oil. Problem with fish oil is that fish oil is usually contaminated with environmental toxicants. We're going to talk about cancer later on, not in this podcast, but future podcasts, like how we can prevent cancers from actually developing and growing in the body. So, like, we know, again, that omega-3 fats have all these beneficial properties. Omega-6 oils, some of them actually get converted into arachidonic acid. So arachidonic acid is a fat that's usually only found in animal foods. Arachidonic acid is a very inflammatory fatty acid that gives rise to a hormone called prostaglandin E2. So omega-3 fats give rise to a hormone called prostaglandin E3, which is the anti-inflammatory hormone. Prostaglandin E1 is made from omega-6 fatty acids. And it has other beneficial properties, but again, we consume too much in the way of omega-6 oils. So where do they come from? Pretty much all the oils that we consume, safflower oil, sunflower oil, sesame oil, corn oil, wheat germ oil, all of these foods usually have predominantly omega-6 fats. We don't see much in the way of omega-3. Now, there are some oils, soybean oil and canola oil and rapeseed oil, and also flax oil especially has the highest amount of omega-3. Hemp seed oil also has significant amounts of omega-3. Chia seed, and you can get an oil from there. And also walnut oil has some omega-3 fats in there. So, but generally we don't use very much of those oils. Now the problem with those oils is they tend to oxidize very easily. So you have to be really careful. You gotta store them airtight containers in the refrigerator. You don't wanna keep them at room temperature. And that goes actually for all oils. You don't want oils being subjected to room temperature and any oxygen because they will oxidize. The bad effects will outweigh the benefits when you get to a certain point because oxidized fats can cause inflammation in the body, etc., upset your brain function. So back to your brain. So well, how do you know like what is in your brain, what kind of fat? There was a podcast with Simon Hill. Simon Hill is a nutritionist, master's degree in nutrition, which I highly respect. He's done some good research, and he has an interview with Bill Harris. So maybe on my podcast, we'll get Bill Harris on here. That would be good because that's a topic, essential fatty acids, that's very near and dear to me. So in that podcast, he addresses the issues. And one of the things he talks about is that, well, what is the ideal ratio in the brain? 
And what we have seen is that there is something called an omega-3 index. The omega-3 index is such that we can actually measure in red blood cell membranes. All membranes in the body contain phospholipid bilayer. Phospholipid bilayer contains different kinds of fats, and they are made up of the type of fat that you eat. So there's something called an omega-3 index that you can actually do. We carry them in the office here. It's a little blood spot. Send it into the lab. Takes a couple weeks back. And it gives you the percentage of omega-3 fats found in your red blood cell membranes. Now, is that the same thing that happens in your brain? We don't know, but it's right now the best test that we have. Certainly, you want to get your red blood cell ratio of omega-3 fats up to at least 8%. So in the United States, the average American is about 5%. When we look at Japanese and the Okinawans, longest-lived people in the world, they consume upwards anywhere from 10 to 12% of their cell membrane is made out of omega-3 fats. And that a lot of it comes from consumption of various types of fish and whatnot. So the thing about fish, though, fish contain a lot of toxicants. 45% of all the fish that we consume are farmed fish. And farmed fish have a significant amount more toxicants in them. So we like to definitely avoid fish that are farmed fish. Okay, so I highly recommend getting your fatty acids tested, see where they're at, even if you're taking a fish oil or another oil like flax oil or algae oil, see what your actual percentage is in your cell membranes because that's going to help with your brain function. It's going to help with your connections. So what they have found is that people that have a higher level of these omega-3 fats in their brain definitely have less dementia, are less prone to Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and other types of neurological dysfunction. So get those omega-3 fatty acids up as high as possible. Okay, so we know this is very interesting. About 20 years ago, they made it an essential ingredient in all infant formulas to have a certain amount of DHA, dicosahexaenoic acid. So before that, they didn't really know, they didn't really understand. But what they know is DHA is concentrated in the retina. And so retinal development in a baby is extremely important for their brain development. And so having a certain level of DHA is critical for the infant. So that means if you're breastfeeding and you're not getting much in the way of fish or algae, might want to check your essential fatty acids to make sure your kid is getting enough from the breast milk. And if not, you can always supplement the mom. You can supplement mom with DHA and EPA, and that will get into the breast milk. Okay. So I just wanted to mention one thing about homocysteine and B vitamins. So homocysteine is a compound that's made in the body and it's made by certain proteins, in particular methionine. Homocysteine is something that was studied by our Dr. Kilmer McCulley back in the 60s in Harvard. They kicked him out of Harvard because they said, you're wasting our money, go somewhere else with your research. Well, he should have won a Nobel Prize in medicine for his discovery that homocysteine, if you have high levels, increases your risk significantly of heart disease, 
and Alzheimer's and other neurological disorders. So you want your homocysteine level to be as low as possible. That would be below eight. And again, there's Unfortunately, most physicians, they don't check this, but if you can look it up, homocysteine, you'll see tons of literature about it. So ask your physician if you can get your homocysteine levels checked. Probably the reason why we don't hear about it is there's no drug to lower homocysteine. It's diet-related and also vitamin-related. Three particular vitamins, vitamin B12, vitamin B6, and folic acid. So with that said, I mentioned about my podcast about vitamins, multivitamins, that you want to get the activated form of some of these vitamins. So methyl B12, methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is a form of folate that's activated, pyridoxal 5-phosphate. So those are the active forms. So those nutrients have been found to lower your level of homocysteine. One of the simple things you could do without measuring, if you don't have a chance to do that, is to simply take a vitamin B12, folic acid, and vitamin B6 supplement. We use here at my clinic, Tabor Hill Clinic, we use a product that comes from Thorn, B-complex number 6 or number 12, that has extra amounts of vitamin B6. We skipped over a little bit about the biochemistry. Vitamin B6 is a really important cofactor for delta-6 desaturase. Delta-6 desaturase is a compound or is an enzyme that basically converts your fatty acids, alpha-linolenic acid or linoleic acid into prostaglandin. I'm not going to go into detail on that, but just to say it's a very important nutrient that's involved in making that conversion into these good hormones. In addition, magnesium is a critical component. So earlier in our little podcast, we talked about magnesium as having a relaxing effect on your body. Great. So taking a magnesium supplement right before bedtime is a really good thing. Problem with magnesium is it can cause diarrhea if you take too much of it. So I created a product called Cardiomagloplex that's a sustained release magnesium that's over six to eight hours. That's great because you can take it a couple times a day and you can keep your tissue level of magnesium up. So taking a magnesium on a daily basis, especially at night before bedtime, can be really helpful with your sleep. Also, some people have a difficult time absorbing vitamin B12, so vitamin B12 shots can be really helpful, especially for people that have problems sleeping or have problems with depression, mood irregularities, Vitamin B12 shots can be super helpful. And also, they don't cost that much. They're painless, and it's really simple. You can request from your physician to check your B12 levels. B12 levels are the range that they have is 150 to 1,250. So crazy wide. I like to see it above 900. There's a more sensitive marker for B12 status called methylmalonic acid, which you can also check but that's a little bit more complicated. The B12, I like because it's really simple and people understand that. One thing to look on your blood tests, if you have a copy of your blood test, which I highly recommend that you get a copy of your blood test and you have your physician actually explain to you what all these things mean rather than to just give it to you and like everything's within normal limits. 
because there's normal and there's good and there's really good and there's excellent. So there's all different levels on there. So one of the things to look for is something called MCV, which is mean cell volume. Mean cell volume tells you how big your red blood cells are. So if your mean cell volume is out of the range, above the range, so the range is 80 to 100. So if you're 103, 104, it means that your red blood cells are big. Big red blood cells usually come from a lack of folic acid or vitamin B12. So just look on your blood work to see if you're 96, 97, they're getting kind of bigger. Again, that's a sign that you may be low in, in vitamin B12. There's a couple books I just wanted to recommend. David Perlmutter, I want to give a shout out, board certified neurologist, practices in Florida. I've seen him lecture on a number of occasions. Brilliant researcher. He has several books out on brain health. One of them is called Grain Brain, which talks about the effect of grains, particularly gluten, on what effect it has on brain chemistry. Gluten can be really a serious problem for a lot of people. And most people don't even know that they're sensitive to gluten. And so celiac disease is the most extreme example of a gluten sensitivity, but there's many variations of that, lesser versions of celiac disease. So that would be gluten sensitivity. So you can check for that. There's various tests you can do to find out, or you could just do a trial, eliminate gluten, which is not easy, for a period of you know four to six weeks, and then bring it back in and see if it makes a difference. For those of you that follow tennis, Novak Djokovic, the best player in the world and possibly the best player in the history of tennis, which is saying something, by the way, he's fully plant-based, confirmed that just recently. He attributes his great success and mental focus abilities on eliminating gluten. So that was one of the big step gluten and dairy products. And, you know, if you watch him play, I mean, he's an amazing person in terms of his intellectual capacity, his insights, and just, you know, and he does a great job. If you want to see something really funny, he does this where he imitates other players, and it's absolutely hilarious. That's kind of what won me over when I saw that, because prior to that, he was like, seemed so ultra serious. Another book that is definitely a must it's written by Dr. Ayusha and Dean Shurzai. They wrote a book called The Alzheimer's Solution. Alzheimer's Solution is a book that talks about brain health. And many of the things that I just talked to you about is something that they talk about in the book. Right now, I just gave a copy to my sister. My sister's reading it, and she was really impressed by this book. So that would be a good one to get. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And I hope you have an enjoyable holiday season. And I hope that you take some of these suggestions and actually use them and have a better season than normal. So over and out. Thanks for listening.